Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Kate Moss is one of the most beloved novelists of our time. She's also the founder of the hugely prestigious Women's Prize for Fiction, and now the author of a new non-fiction book called Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. It's a celebration of trailblazing women from history, some of whom are household names, and some of whom have been almost forgotten. Kate joined us last week to reveal more, in conversation with the writer Erica Wagner. Enjoy. So, I will start by asking you to tell us, Kate, the the origin of this extraordinary project. Yeah, well, I write historical fiction, I write gothic fiction, I do write non-fiction too, but the thing that they all have in common is the idea of unheard and underheard women's stories. The idea that the world, our beautiful, challenging, complicated world, has always been built by all of us, but that history often suggests a very partial uh, analysis of who did what and why they did it and when. And so I think if it hadn't been for lockdown, I probably wouldn't have had the time or maybe even the inclination. But I was publishing a novel into the, in for me in England, the darkest of the lockdowns in January 2021. And I really enjoy events. I really enjoy meeting readers. And none of that was going to happen. And in fact, I never saw that novel in hardback in a bookshop because it was published into silence and the bookshops were shut for four months, you know. Um, so I asked some friends, writer friends, because I just wanted to do something. I said, oh, tell me the one woman from history who you think should be better known or you'd like to celebrate. And you indeed gave me somebody and other people gave me, you know, so Lee Child said, for example, the women of the Special Operations Executive. Anthony Horowitz said, uh, Lascarina Bubalina, who was the great uh, Greek war admiral, uh, you know, in the war of uh, the Greek War of Independence and the only woman to have ever been an admiral in the Russian fleet. Uh, Claire Balding said, Lily Parr the only uh, woman footballer that there has ever been a statue to and who was the the most capped English player ever, male or female. Professor Kate Williams said uh, Murasaki Shikubu, um, who was a Japanese novelist and is considered to be the world's first ever novelist. And some of the uh, people suggested I knew and others I didn't. And so then I did a thing that will never happen to me again, probably, and it would not have happened (laughs) were it not for it being locked down. So I simply did the same question onto social media. And within days, I had thousands of nominations from all over the world. So a young woman in China saying, have you heard of the poet Ding Ling? Uh, A young woman in Saudi Arabia saying, have you heard of the great Egyptian feminist Huda Shoawi, who was the woman who came back from the International Women's uh, Suffrage Conference in Paris in 1923 and removed her veil at Cairo Station. And 99 years later, we are still having conversations about women's right to bodily autonomy, you know, these things. And so I just felt, firstly, when you know me, Erica, I cling on to being hopeful (laughs) um, and positive in the the face of quite a lot of challenges on that at the moment. But actually what it made me feel was people's reaction that actually mostly people wanted to celebrate rather than rip down or divide. 
And secondly, I was spending time in the company of extraordinary women. And I wasn't inclined to stop doing that. So I then thought, you know, I'd like to ask myself a question. What is history? Who makes it? Who decides what matters? Who decides whose legacy remains and who is lost? And in a way, the book was therefore a celebration of extraordinary women, but it was also my question to myself. And then, of course, I needed to find a way that I could write this book that would make it my book and not just another list of names. And so let's come to that. Tell me a little bit about Lily. I knew in my family that there was, and it was always described like this, someone who wrote. And it was always said in that kind of way as if, you know, her name is on the flower rotor for church on a Sunday. It was never said as if this was a significant thing or a defining thing, if you will. But when I looked into the life of my great-grandmother, I discovered that she had been a very, very well-regarded and famous novelist in her day. Lily Watson, born in 1849, died in 1932. She wrote 14 novels. She wrote hundreds of essays. She was a correspondent for the Girls' Own paper, which became Woman's Own. She wrote devotional poetry. She wrote volumes of poetry and children's stories. And she, when her most famous novel, The Vicar of Langthwaite, was published in 1893, it came with a foreword from Gladstone, the Prime Minister. She was so well regarded. And she was a, you know, in modern language, a privileged middle-class woman. But yet you can find no record of her at all. Nowhere. And in a way that made me think, well, if someone like she has disappeared, then what about everybody else? Because it was the question of, you tend to think that often it's what historians call the silence in the archives, that women's lives were not regarded and therefore information about their lives was never preserved and therefore it's not there for future historians to find. But actually what I discovered was that was true. But also there were many people, Mary Anning, uh, you know, um, Mary Seacole, you know, all, you know, many women who were very well known in their, their day, but no legacy and no protection. And my great grandmother was one of those. And so I turned detective and spent, you know, lockdown trying to walk in her footsteps to find out who she was and why she didn't exist anymore. It is remarkable that I am um, my last book, but one chief engineer was a biography of the man who built the Brooklyn Bridge, Washington Roebling. So a book about a man, but he had a very remarkable wife, Emily Roebling. And I was very struck. Um, they had this extraordinary correspondence during the American Civil War. We have all of his letters, his extraordinary letters. Mm -hmm. He said, and you know, I'm a great advocate of his, of course, I wrote a book about him, but he said that it caused him too much pain to keep reflecting on her letters, so he burned them all. So we only have one half of this correspondence. And, you know, this seems to me a sort of an, ex an exemplar of the way in which women's records have been valued. And I've been listening again, um, as I, you may have been too, and I enjoin everyone to, to Hilary Mantel's wonderful yeah, brief lectures. lectures. Yeah. And yeah. at the end of the first one, Sarah Dunant asks her a, a question about what it, you know, what it means to 
to write historical fiction. And of, and of course, what Hillary was doing was centered on Thomas Cromwell, you know, on a man when there is so little record of what women do. And I guess I would, I don't, I sort of, before we really get into the, the, the meat of the book, that's something you, you know, you have done too in writing historical fiction. So this isn't something that you've just started thinking about, you know, no. in 2021. How has that affected your outlook before this book? Well, I think it's, um, there are, I would say there are three very distinct different areas about why women are absent from the historical record. One is that in most and many periods of history, women were not seen as significant in the way that men were seen as significant. They had fewer rights, they had fewer opportunities, and often uh, were, were uh, not allowed to write or record their own experience. So that's one, that very deliberate thing. And we're seeing that, you know, in front of our eyes at the moment. Uh, you know, the, the Taliban went back into Afghanistan in August 2021. Before that happened, uh, there were more women in the Afghan parliament than any other parliament in the world. And in two days, that was gone. So there is deliberate attempts to silence and ignore and erase women. That's one thing. There is also what I would call benign neglect, which is the idea that, yeah, but women weren't really there. Or if they were there, they weren't doing anything. And we see this most significantly within science. And there is a particular phrase called the Matilda effect, which was an American science journalist, Margaret W. Rossiter, who in the 1970s coined the phrase. And it's named for, and you will know her, Erica, uh, the great uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage. She was one of the key women in the American suffrage movement and part of the Seneca Falls Convention. And uh, Rossiter's idea was that because almost everybody writing about science history was male, uh, that even if they saw a woman there, they didn't believe she was doing anything. She wasn't a scientist. And, you know, the most, I suppose, the notorious example is Lise, you know, Lise Meitner, who in 1944 was denied um, a share of the Nobel Prize in chemistry and had to watch it being given to her male partner, who had said it really is her work. So it was that idea that women might have been in the room, but they were holding the coats or making the tea or whatever. And then the third thing I would say is about legacy and about who protects the legacy of a person. And one of the things, and this is not based on empirical or historical research, but it is, I think, something that I would like real historians to look into, because I am not a historian, I'm someone who's curious is that particularly in the 19th century, when history as a discipline was becoming very codified, that women essentially, in certainly in Britain, were the property of their husbands if they, once they married. You know, the, it was couverture. Um, it was the idea that a woman, her earnings, her self, her children, everything was the husband's property. And actually, wives had fewer uh, rights, actually, than domestic servants in some situations. So what you see there in some of the very important moments of women's emancipation in history, particularly in the law, in suffrage, in medicine, in invention, is women not marrying. So many of the most significant women did not marry. And so who is going to be sitting there going, pay attention? So people who were very famous in their day, 
then vanished. So the and only it, way for them to preserve their independence was not to marry, but then that meant there was no it, legacy. Exactly. I mean, this is, you know, this is not uh, part of a, a, any sort of, you know, proper research. But the more that I looked into the, particularly, um, you know, the Victorian period in England, but actually in many other countries as well, you saw that many of the women who were doing the most extraordinary things had remained unmarried in order to be free to do what they wanted to do. But therefore, when they died, they died. There were no children and there were, there were you know, no family supporting them. I'm curious, you know, um, talking about Lily, um, this extraordinary novel um, with a foreword by Gladstone. What did you think when you read it? Now, this is a really interesting thing because, of course, we know that there are many wonderful novels that never get their moment in the sun. And there are many truly not so wonderful novels that are, you know, get, get all the sun. You know, they, you know, um, so this is not a comment about judgment. The thing that I, I noted with my great grandmother's writing is that it is, it is very much of its time. So she was a very strong Christian. She was a Baptist, uh, for all of her life until her sixties when she then became a member of the Church of England. And that was one part of the uh, detective story I never got to the bottom of. And I, um, a lot of the fiction is, um, it has a very strong moral message. So in terms of the idea of a novel being driven by momentum and jeopardy and plot, those things are there. But at the same time, it is clear that there is a message behind all of her fiction, which is the status quo ante, um, the idea that men are like this and women are like that, and that a life closer to uh, God is a better life than one that is not. Now, some of it is to my taste and some of it is, a, you know, a little bit uh, saccharine, but it is very interesting for me because most of my historical fiction at the heart of it has the question about faith and the consequences of faith and war and the consequences of war and the idea that Europe has been fashioned by Christianity in many ways and for, for a great deal of ill as well as for some good. And so to discover that actually my great-grandmother was in a way writing similar sorts of fiction, although our uh, determination is different, and all of her novels are led by female characters, and they contain a lot of sense about women's agency and uh, women's place in the world. So that was very moving, actually, in a way, to discover that. Are they great novels? It's not really the point, because as we know, there are a lot of novels by male writers that are not great novels either but they have become classics. So it's not really about a value judgment about literature. It's about the invisibility of women. Yes. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now.
Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. No, I was, but I was, I was curious in a literary sense. And also because at that time, I mean, you mention, um, you know, there is an appearance in your book by Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, you know, who, who I, I think there's a case to be made that in Uncle Tom's Cabin, possibly that's the, the sort of single novel that actually sort of affected political change. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, and it ha- and but that is very much in a way. There are many reasons that that book is hard to read now. But it's a novel that is doing a job rather than yes, being a but, work of fiction. Yes, that's right. But there's also, I think, that that's a really terrific example of something that holds re- uh, true when you're talking about putting women back into history. And this book is not my book. is a celebration of, of nearly a thousand ex- uh, wonderful women, uh, but. It isn't about saying taking the wonderful men out of history. It's about putting the women in. It's the famous, uh, wonderful Shirley Chisholm um, uh, statement. You know, uh, extraordinary um, politician, uh, woman of color in America, who said, you know, if they won't give you a seat at the table, bring your old own fo- folding chair. And so, one of the things I would say is about is about this whole thing, whether it's about Uncle Tom's Cabin or anything else, is that there has been a very concerted effort to say that if you don't agree with everything a woman says, then you can't agree with her at all. But this is the politics of the playground. This is childish. And we are witnessing these politics at the moment. You know, the, the idea of division, let's divide people up and make them fight amongst themselves so that the coach and horses can be driven through the middle. Women's place in history cannot be about likability. It cannot be whether you agree with everything she says. And one, I suppose, one of the most notorious examples of this would probably be Mary Stopes. Now, very significant in terms of women's rights over their own bodies. But many others of her views are really, for many of us, really abhorrent. But does... Because she was does, she was really a eugenicist, wasn't she? She was a eugenicist. Uh, she actually, you know, uh, and she didn't... Uh, she didn't believe that women should have the right to abortion and all, you know, so she partially believed in women's uh, autonomy, you know, bodily autonomy, as it's now been called, because, I mean, how appalling is it that we're back having these debates now? As an older feminist, I never thought we'd be back where we are. But the thing about her is a very good example is that some of the things she did were incredibly significant for women's lives and made the difference to countless thousands of women's lives and some of her views were views that I don't I I find really awful and many people would and other people wouldn't but there is this issue always about putting women back into history about likability we don't say well we can't study Churchill or Stalin or Hitler because you know they got some dodgy views Uh, we say they had they made a significant difference to history so we must afford women the same uh, right, if you like, to be monstrous, <laughs> you know, as well. Um, and that that is a challenging thing within feminist history and women's history, because the temptation to only celebrate, as it were, well, celebrate, certainly, but 
to promote the women that you agree with is very strong in that area. But we can't do that. We History matters because people use uh, a defense of history to justify prejudice and bigotry and exclusion now. So our, all of our job really is to say, these were all the people with all of their views that made the world that we have been descended from. You know, we walk in all of these people's footsteps. It's fascinating. You mentioned that wonderful quote from Shirley Chisholm and, you know, bringing your folding chair to the table. Early on in the book, you tell the wonderful story of what happened when uh, diving into the wreck by Adrienne Rich was uh, given the National Book Award for Poetry in 1974. Can you say a little something about that? It's such a wonderful story. Well, yes, thank you. I mean, I, um, you know, I talk about this in the book because there's a great deal of um, my personal uh, journey, I suppose, from being uh, somebody with a very happy and secure and eyes closed environment to being a feminist. Um, and, you know, learning that things were not always quite as easy as they seemed. I suppose. Um, but I, when I went to university, I was introduced by um, a tutor, an extraordinary American uh, woman who was actually very young. I mean, now looking back, she seemed like a grown up, but she was incredibly young to the poetry of Adrienne Rich. And I, and she is a poet and indeed essayist and feminist thinker who she died in 2012, who meant a great deal to me. And she and Alice Walker and Audrey Lord were all shortlisted for the prize in 1974. And they wrote a joint statement that whoever won would go up and read the statement about dedicating it to all the women whose voices go unheard in, in a patriarchal world. And everything about Walker's work and Audrey Lord's work and Adrienne Rich's work tragically resonates now resonates now. I mean, this was 1974, but you know what? Much of it hasn't really changed. And so for me, um, that moment of, uh, you know, someone once said to me, but once your eyes are opened, you can't unsee it. And I feel, you know, that's what it felt like for me, that I, I went to a huge uh, state school in Sussex. It was all girls, 2000 of us. Uh, you know, it was rough and tumble in, in some respects. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I was in a family with parents who loved us and my, you know, my sisters, and we never had any sense that we couldn't do whatever we wanted. And then I went to university and met people who had been told from the earliest age that they didn't matter as much as their brother. And so I think for, this is where my feminism comes from and where this book comes from is, don't stand pointing the finger at people. Uh, listen to what they know and where they've come from and then have a conversation. Because I look back on my younger self and think, you know, I was incredibly naive. Uh, but when I got there and I started to read other writers, that made a great deal of difference to me. And that's why, you know, the book is divided into 10 subject areas, the largest of which in the first chapter is The Pen is Mightier and it's about the writers. Because if women are not allowed to write their own stories... And if they are not allowed to archive and preserve those stories, then women's contribution will be lost. And that is indeed what happened. 
Uh, we have a question from a viewer which relates to something you were just saying, and it's a very interesting question developing this issue of likability in quotes. How can we learn about historic women who were monstrous in a way that won't systematically villainize them? And I, to me, that's an interesting question because that leap from difficult difficulty to villainy <laughs> seems much shorter <laughs> when it comes <laughs> to women. Yes, I, th- I think that is absolutely right. That um, it's, a, it's a really brilliant question. And it's one that I've asked myself quite a lot writing the book. I think that there are two things. Firstly, that understanding that women are almost always called to a higher standard than men are. So be very careful that you're not being sucked into that. So um, being encouraged to focus on the tiny uh, detail of a transgression or a failing as opposed to the bigger picture. But I think also we always need to bear in mind that often it depends where you stand. Now, there are many women in the book where if you are in one particular culture and country, they are a heroine. And if you're another one, they are the enemy. And that would be most obvious, I suppose, for British viewers of this tonight, that someone like my great-grandmother believed absolutely in empire. I don't think that was a great, you know, I think that, you know, all, all this kind of thing. I write about, you know, women in history. One of my novels, Citadel, is set in the Second World War and it's centred around an all-female resistance unit in Caucasus in the southwest of France. For most of the Second World War, for most of the time in France, people felt that the resistance were the enemy. They didn't think they were the liberators. They thought that they were stopping France having a seat at the table with what would be the new world order. We need to remember that the people of the past don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if they're on the, in inverted commas, winning team. They don't know that it would turn out to be a brilliant thing to do X or a terrible thing to do Y. And so I suppose what I feel when we're looking at women in history and uh, being aware that women are vilified in a way that men are not, you know, you just need to know that men are described as confident and leaders and women are described as feisty or bossy. Uh, You know, they are the same characteristics, but they they, they read differently. Is that idea that Uh, women are allowed to be themselves and nobody expects men to agree with one another because they're men. But there is a great sense that all women must agree with one another because they're women. And we need to move beyond that. I was talking to a a young friend of mine the other day, a young male novelist, um, and um, being forthright and something in our conversation caused me to recall the wonderful title of Shinette O'Connor's album, I'm Not Bossy, I'm the Boss. <laughs> and you, yeah, no, th- that's, that's exactly right. But, but I mean, I, th- I think the bigger issue about um, women's place in history is that common sense tells us that women were part of everything. Women have always done everything. And history is a pendulum. It swings backwards and forwards. So women in ancient Egypt 
um, of a certain class had exactly the same rights as men of a certain class because it was about property and wealth. Uh, women in 18th century England had more rights in some respects than women did 100 years later in Victorian England. So the, there is always this kind of rather hopeful doctrine that everything gets better year on year for women. But we're looking at the evidence of our own eyes at the moment. I was about to say, we only have to look around us to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So once you do that, then you think, well, of course. You know, I write about, you know, historical fiction. And, you know, at the moment I'm writing a a big series of books set against the Huguenot diaspora. And the men in Europe, every country in Europe, bar England, oddly, as it was then, were at war for a generation. So who do we think were opening the gates? and chopping the wood, and binding the books, and baking the bread. The men weren't there. So it's always that. It's about, for me, when I was researching this and all the extraordinary women, it was about common sense. We know women were there too. They were always there too. So when someone says to you, there have never been any women, dot, 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 this book is the book to say, I refer you to chapter eight, <laughs> you know, because because that's the point, really. It's about putting the women back. And we talked about, you know, b- before we did this event about, uh, you know, a, a few of these women, you know, and of course, the book was full of surprises for me, as it, I know it was, and you've said it was for you in, in writing it. I was constantly sort of making notes of names that I didn't know. You know, one that sprang out to me was Fatima bint Mohammed Al-Firiya, who founded the first university in Morocco, um, yeah. you know, in the ninth century. Yeah, in Fez in 859. And it was you know, a place of worship and a place of learning. And it is, although obviously it's been through many transliterations, as it were, it is the longest continuous place of learning in the world. And, uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of conversations about uh, women's representation in different particular parts of the world and different faith systems and all and all of this. And needless to say, um, her role in this has been challenged by certain male clerics. But actually, um, there is a great deal of evidence that she did absolutely found this place of worship and learning. And it developed and it developed and it developed. And although Um, it was only for male students. There was also an open gallery, which meant that women were able to go and listen. And it became, you know, it started to accept female students in 1940 and became the state university in 1963. And it's the oldest institution of learning in the world, founded by a woman. How did you that, um, you know, we were talking about the historical record and the absence, you know, what is or isn't in it. Tell me a little bit about your research process for this so you know thousand women and there are shorter stories longer stories um when did you know that you needed help when did you kind of trust your own instincts tell us a little bit about the process well because of i i'd had so many nominations from all over the world for the book i did use that as my starting point but then of course i looked and i could see that um i'd got huge numbers of american women for example Um, And obviously huge numbers of British women. But I didn't have uh, many people from Germany, say, or indeed Morocco or uh, Polynesia. Or so once I I did want it to be global, there are plenty of books that are putting women back into history. 
Uh, so the combination of my detective story, but also wanting it to be global and uh, covering an enormous period of history rather than the 10 most famous women doctors you should know or the 10 most famous inventors meant that I actively went in search of things. So I would say, you know, because um, it was lockdown, um, I was very reliant at that moment in the first instance on um, online sources. Uh, and Wikipedia is great, but it's you, you need to double check. And also, as many people listening will know, that Wikipedia, 90% of people who post on Wikipedia are men. And only, I think it's 16% of biographies on Wikipedia are of women. So the same kind of prejudice and bias persists even in this wonderfully open forum. Um, so I used a lot of online sources. And then, of course, once I was free to go and check them out. But I did, you know, actively seek out women in different parts of the world. Um, you know, so I wanted to make sure that there were First Nation women. I wanted to make sure that there were women uh, from China and Japan and Korea and, you know, wherever it was. So that there was a sense. I, what I, you know, what I wanted to know was, were there commonalities between women, regardless of how utterly different the societal framework they were operating in was? And, you know, that... I, you know, it's 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 no surprise to know that in every period of time and in every single culture, women mostly have had the worst of it. You know that that's it really. It, you know that there is very little that links the experience of a woman in 14th century China to a woman in 20th century France, except their rights are not the same as the men that stand beside them. And this is why, you know, a lot of people in the few events I've done so far, the book comes out tomorrow. Um, every time people have said, you know, are you hopeful? And I said, well, you know, actually I am hopeful because on the scale of things, we now talk about this as being not right, that women are not equal citizens. And in countries where that is still the case, people don't think that is a, a healthy society. A hundred years ago, people would have, not even really taken that seriously as a question. So a huge amount has changed for women's lives. Um, and the women in the book, you know, all of them, it's a sense for me of we need to know what we owe them. Rights that have been won and given can be lost very, very quickly, as we're seeing. Um, and it's about knowing in whose footsteps we walk, because that's how you protect the future. One of the things that I... I you know, again, I was struck by this book because there are so many things in one's life, even if you think you are a sort of conscious feminist and paying attention to the world around you, something as simple as the origin of the term blue stocking, which is both sort of admiring and pejorative all at once. I confess I had never bothered to think about um, tell us a bit about that. Well, I, I think um, I'm glad you picked that out because it, it's it's in a way it's kind of a microcosm of everything that this book is about. That so often phrases that we think of as rather marvelous were intended as pejorative in the first instance, or they started off great and they became pejorative and then they've been reclaimed, and that's exactly what happened with blue stocking. Um, so that it's. Um, the, the story goes that there was this extraordinary Irish intellectual 18th century woman called Elizabeth Vesey, 
And she invited a very distinguished man to her salon uh, to come and talk. And he gave the excuse that he could not come and talk to this group of ladies because he didn't have any appropriate clothes. And she said, well, come in your bas bleu, your blue stockings. In other words, your everyday clothes. And so this became the phrase. And it was an anecdote that was recounted by Fanny Burney. Um, and then Hannah Moore, a, you know, a, a very great, I mean, feminist wasn't a word that existed then, really. But she wrote a poem in 1783 and published it five years later called The Bableux. And it's about conversation and how men sit around and talk. And that is seen as intellectual and significant. And when women do it, it's dismissed and seen as gossip. And, you know, you're just talking about needlework and nothing else. And so a blue stocking became the idea of an intellectual woman, a woman who'd sit around with other women to talk about things other than the domestic sphere. And, you know, there was, you know, there were many rival salons uh, going on in London. And then it started to be used pejoratively. So any woman who spoke up was like, oh, you're a blue stocking. And of course, that then carried with it, you're not attractive. You know, it's, it's exactly what we saw with the, fem with the word feminist in the 60s and 70s. You're not attractive. Nobody wants to marry you. you. You've got no life, really. You're one of those people because you can't succeed in the proper womanly environment. And that, so then it became very pejorative. And then it started to be reclaimed, um, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. And one of the examples I give in the book is the fact that the great Harriet Vane in, in Dorothy L. Sayers' Lord Peter Whimsey books, you know, she talks about being a blue stocking and that it became a rallying cry for women uh, wanting to be part of universities, wanting to study, and women reclaimed it as a name. And now, in a way, everybody knows what a blue stocking is. You know, it's someone who is principled and clear and serious and want something more than, you know, just to stand around, uh, you know, f being slightly pretty in the background. So, I, you know, I, the, the book is full of those kind of things, which, you know, the, the other one, I don't know if you pick this up, that I, I particularly love is Mary Somerville, since we're talking about Oxford and all of these kind of things, uh, who was this extraordinary Scottish scientist and polymath. She was an astronomer. She wrote the first ever geography textbook in English. Um, but... The word scientist was invented for her. Before Mary Somerville, they always talked about men of science. And then she was so extraordinary that they thought we need a phrase. And so the word scientist was born. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. I did an event last night um, with the wonderful Cressida Connolly, whose new novel is called Bad Relations, which I commend to you and to everyone. And it too... Um, centers especially in the in its first part about hidden women's histories the first section is set during the Crimean War and the plot is affected by the change in the divorce laws one of the characters is strongly affected by this so one of the women I'd like to ask you about um, is the remarkable Caroline Norton 
Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about... Well, Caroline Norton, who is a, a, a British woman, she, you know, every woman who is going through a divorce in the UK owes a great deal to Caroline Norton. Um, not that anybody wants that to be, you know, people's stories. But she was married to an abusive and un very, very unpleasant man and was accused of adultery. And she was acquitted, but he refused to divorce her. And more than that, he... Uh, refused to let her see her children. He continued to take all her earnings from her writing. And she, rather than accepting this, that she, you know, because women essentially in Victorian England in that way were the husband's property. You know, it was the, the, the law was couverture. Um, and they did, as we said earlier, have fewer rights than the domestic servants that they employed, actually. And so she just refused to accept this. And she went, uh, she wrote to Queen Victoria and said, you know, it should make a difference that there's a woman on the throne. And she uh, pushed through legislation. So the Custody of Infants Acts in 1839, because she was not allowed to see her children for a long time, the Matrimonial Causes Act in 1857, and very significantly, the Married Women's Property Act in 1870. And she utterly transformed women's lives, a certain class of women's lives, to be sure. Um, and everything that women have in terms of some of their rights within marriage come from this woman, Caroline Norton. Now, many people will have never heard of her, but if they have been uh, to the House of Lords and they have seen the uh, fresco or the frieze, if you like, of justice on the wall there, she modelled for the artist for that because she became a famous symbol of injustice. And so Daniel Mackley said come and model for me. And so the thing I suppose that I feel most passionate about this book, this is a book for mothers to give to their sons and fathers to give to their daughters and friends to give to friends. I want people to be going, oh my Lord, I never knew that. I never knew. You know, one of my favourite ones is an <laughs> uh, American woman who clearly had just really had enough um, at the end of the 19th century. And she left her kitchen in Chicago and went to a shed at the bottom of her garden um, and invented the dishwasher <laughs> in 1893. And essentially the machine that we have today is still that same machine. So what this book is supposed to be is like, I had no idea that that person did this or that person did that because much of what has happened about women's achievements is about misattribution or being um, sort of ignored or, you know, that, that someone invents something or discovers something and three years later, a man does it and then it becomes part of the, the folkloric history. Um, so it's just, you know, it, that there is a great deal of joy in the book. But with some of the interviews I've done, some people say I'm really furious and others, you know, see the joy of the book. And that's kind of what I hope, both half and half. Yes, yes. Joy and fury at the same time. Yes, exactly. Um, we have another viewer question um, talking about blue stockings and intellectual women. Do you think intellectual women today are still frowned upon. I have a couple of things to say about that myself, I have to say. About no, that. I think you um, I think you only need to go to the uh, bookshelves in all of the leading bookstores and you will find nowadays the phrase is smart thinking, but we could e equally put intellectual thinking. And I've obviously, because I'm like that, have done a bit of a tally of this. And often in a shelf of 40 books, you might find two or three by a woman. So I think that there is still an idea that intellectual women are slightly 
Um, it's not unnatural, but um, that women are supposed to use a certain that that women are not expert. That there is still that idea that women are strongest in emotion and that side of things. And you see this all the way through history. There were certain areas where women were allowed to excel, often in caring, often in gardening, often in those things, but not in science and not in war and not in invention. And so I do think there is still an idea of an intellectual woman is slightly to be, well, you, you're cautious around her. And I think that we need, there's a great deal of very powerful and strong nonfiction at the moment. Um, but I think, you know, when the, I think it was the Times, I'm afraid, um, when uh, they were doing a reading list for who might be the new prime minister and Lord. Don't say that. I'm you know, not there anymore. No, that's true. I mean, I, yeah, you're right. But I still associate you with that. Um, you know, but they, they did a reading list for the new prime minister, one of whom might have been a woman, one of whom might have been a man at that stage. And there were 10 books. And not a single one was by a woman. So I do I do still think there is a bias against intellectual women and the idea that, you know, they need to lighten up a bit, that women are supposed to be charming rather than rigorous. Well, and I will let, you know, I will not forget um, because I was, I was literary editor of the Times for many years. And exactly, towards, that's why I was. <laughs> towards the end of my tenure there, um, sort of management consultants were brought in and, um, you know, we had to start having performance reviews as often now happens in big companies. And I had a, a boss who was someone I liked very much, but he did remark to me um, in the course of this performance review that there were people um, in the in the company, in the Times, you know, who found me a bit scary. And I could think about kind of softening myself down a bit. And... Yeah. I I think at the time, you know, I kind of listened. I feel pretty incandescent now because what just would anyone ever say that to a man? No, no. And I mean, but I I think I think the thing is about for me about writing this book is to know that there is such a thing as patriarchy, and this is not about men versus women. It's about a system of power which disadvantages all women and many men. And so the idea that women have certain characteristics that are uh, supposed to be uh, valued and others that are not, and men have certain characteristics that are to be valued and others that are not, is extremely persistent. Um, but it doesn't bear much relation to how ordinary, for want of a better word, women and men exist in the real world and create things and change things and do things. And so what I think um, we need to do, and this is why history matters, and we go back to the question about who makes it, is that we always have to challenge who is in the history books and who isn't and why, who has written the history and who hasn't and why, and what purpose history is being put to. Because that is the issue. If it was all about uh, kind of the rose-tinted uh, highlands of, of the past, then that's fine. But actually, history, as it's taught and used and manipulated, has an active effect on people's experiences now. And that's why we need to keep being rigorous and uh, investigating it, and why we need to put the women back. 
And that's why, you know, um, you alluded to this, I, I think, at the, the beginning of our talk, but we can hardly fail to mention what's going on in Iran right now. And of course, you talk about a remarkable group of Iranian female lawyers um, yeah. going sort of, I think, far, you know, farther back than some people would have expected. Can you say a, a little bit about those women? Well, yes. I mean, they're, they're listed in the book. I mean, the most famous is probably Nazrin Sadudeh, but um, there are many others. Um, but this is, I suppose, what, again, historians and philosophers would call the uh, law of unintended consequences, that uh, women's uh, situation in Iran, in some respects, not all, but was better before the fall of the Shah than it was subsequently, um, because theocracies are almost always incredibly predicated on uh, women being subservient. Not all, but mostly that is the case within monotheistic religions. And so you look at uh, much of the footage about Iran, um, particularly from Tehran, obviously, in the 60s and 70s, and there is a level of um, agency for women that... The moment that um, uh, you know the is you know the the Islamic revolution happened, uh, women lost a lot of the rights that they had. Not all women, of course, um, but there was a turning back of time, and also an interpretation which was uh, this is Islam, which many people would say, well, it's a very extreme, very misogynist form of interpretation, which was not there before. So, of course, that was really important in this book to talk about all of these extraordinary women um, in Iran who have been speaking for other women for, you know, a generation. And their lives, uh, you know, I, I can only imagine, but the level of courage is is quite extraordinary. And we're seeing now with, um, you know, we don't know all of us, of course, where things will go. And I'm absolutely not entitled to have an opinion about this. I'm only watching things on the news like everybody else. But the point is that you, it reminds me of, for example, you know, when I was writing Citadel in Carcassonne in 1943, the girls in the school in the, in the heart of the Bastide of Carcassonne, uh, they refused to let the SS take their Jewish schoolmates. And they, uh, all swapped clothes and they all walked very closely together and they essentially bundled the girls that the SS had come to take within them. And, you know, the, the, the soldiers were just seeing a whole load of schoolgirls. They couldn't really tell who was who and they managed to protect them. And now again, on a different day, every single one of those children would have been shot, but not that day. And every day that we're watching on the television at the moment, we don't know what's going to happen, and neither do the people who are protesting. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you probably remember, I remember uh, very clearly, and many people listening will remember, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. The week before that, everybody who'd run across no man's land had been shot. And then that day, the soldiers didn't lift their guns. So that everything changed. So we come back again that people living through history don't know the outcome. And that, again, is why, for me, it's so important to put the women back, uh, because 
if you only tell a partial view of history, then your possibility of interpreting the present is very significantly disabled because it's not the whole story. You know, it's, it's a partial version of what happened. And if we have a fuller version, then surely we have a better chance of improving things and sustaining improvement for the future, which in the end, I think, is partly what history is about as well. Uh, we have another sort of five minutes, and I, I will turn back uh, a little bit to, to your story and to Lily's story, you know, without no no spoilers here, of course. Um, but when you're, you are writing about how difficult it is to find material about your great-grandmother, and then you find this extraordinary cache of letters. Can you say a little something about that? That must have been remarkable. It was a wonderful thing as a researcher, and it was a nightmare as an author, because I had nearly finished the book, and it was two weeks before Christmas um, last year, and my second cousin said, oh, Kate, I found a chest of letters from Lily to her husband. And, it, and of course, that's what every researcher in history dreams of. But you'd really like to have had it a bit earlier than two weeks before the delivery deadline. And then I said, well, how many letters are there? And she said, oh, you know, quite a lot. I mean, and then the chest arrived and there were like 500 letters. And of course, there was no possibility of me reading and cataloguing the letters in the time. But I could, I, I did say to my publisher, I, I need, I need a little bit longer and had a bit longer. But, and that was wonderful because it was her voice on the page. Um, but the thing that was in a way interesting about that was that it made me concerned about the cataloguing of future uh, memories and records because they are physical letters that have been found. Almost everything at the moment now is electronic. We will run out of power, so we will not be able to access all these extraordinary archives. And many of the, ex uh, the, the kind of letters and the messages that are going backwards and forwards between my great-grandmother and her husband would nowadays be on a text that will never be kept. So it did make me think, how are we going to protect the stories of the future? And I, th I, and I think that's a very big question in terms of research and history, that so much is going to be ephemeral and will very easily be lost. I mean, it's the myth of the uh, great library in Alexandria, um, the idea that the, the greatest library that's ever existed was lost and looted. But truthfully, actually, the library had fallen into disarray and much of what was lost was actually just a storeroom, not that. But the idea of it is true. So we're having a conversation tonight. It will be cached. It will be put somewhere. It might be podcasted or whatever. But when there's no power, that's that's that. It doesn't exist anymore. Let's have a final question uh, before we close from our audience. How, which is a good question to end on, how do you believe each of us can put women back in history? What's one action we can take today? That's a great question. It's a brilliant question. And in a way, this book is the beginning of a conversation, not the end of it. And what I would really love, having just talked about, you know, uh, technology and all the rest of it, but let's use it for, for women's good. I would love everybody tomorrow 
if they do social media, to go on social media and nominate one woman from history they'd like to celebrate or they think should be better known, like I did right at the beginning of the campaign. Uh, but also it's about finding somebody you want to celebrate or many people you want to celebrate and telling somebody else about them. It's about if you are a parent of girls and boys at school, asking when they come home with their history homework, why there are no women at all on the history curriculum. And the title of the book, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, is about this. Some people are the people at the front of the army waving the banner. Some are the quiet people who change one person's mind person by person by person. But all of us have the power to talk about extraordinary women that matter to us and we think should be celebrated. And, you know, you will do the same, Erica. It's, you know, the thing that I always do, if I'm invited to take part in a panel event, I always ask, are there other women? So that it's never just me. And when I'm asked to write um, a recommendation about a, a reading list or uh, somebody I'd like to talk about, I always recommend a woman, sometimes as well as a man, and sometimes not. But I think that these small steps, um, you know, sisterhood works, shoulder to shoulder. And also to say, saying to younger people, it matters that boys and men are part of this, really crucially. Both you and I have a son, I have a daughter as well. It's about everybody is richer in terms of experience and knowledge and opportunity if we stand shoulder to shoulder. So keeping on saying that, and if you, you know, if you read the book, it's, it's that thing. People say to me all the time, that, well, there are no female composers. Kate, I'll go. Here are one or two. Yes. So learn our history and share our history and keep talking about it. Well, I, in that spirit, I have to say, I'm then going to cheekily close by saying, here's my woman. <laughs> my, book, my book was published just last week, um, Mary and Mr. Elliot, which is about a remarkable woman called Mary Trevelyan, who had a 20-year friendship with T.S. Eliot and was very significant in his life, but has been her story has been largely hidden until now, and it was a great privilege to have the opportunity to tell it. So there's my contribution before Brilliant. tomorrow. And everybody who's been listening tonight, uh, yeah, tomorrow, put your person out there as well. And keep asking, keep asking, where are the women? Um, well, thank you so much, Kate Moss. This has been an absolutely wonderful event. Congratulations on your publication. I hope we will meet again in person soon. And thank you, everyone, for coming tonight and listening. And thank you for the great questions, too. Thank you, Erica. This episode of the podcast starred Kate Moss and was presented by Erica Wagner. The producer was Nicole Wong, and the series is made by myself and Esme Bright. Our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed this episode, take a look through our archives, where you'll find Isabella Allende, Maggie O'Farrell, and many more groundbreaking novelists. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>